1: and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. That is Isaiah 1, verse 31. I am your host, Sandra Flack, and I'm thrilled to round out our September FASD Awareness episodes with a special treat. Recently, I had the honor of collaborating with several fellow FASD podcasters from around the world, and we got to sit down with Dr. Jared Brown, the same Dr. Brown, sharing his knowledge about FASD, trauma, and adverse childhood experiences on our special bonus episodes that air on Friday. Um, if you haven't checked those out yet, I suggest you do, they're, they're, um, they drop into your inbox Uh, With this podcast uh, weekly, uh, these regular episodes are Mondays, our bonus episodes drop on Fridays, and we're doing a whole series of about 15 episodes with Dr. Jared Brown, where he really unpacks um, these vital topics that are um, so important for every adoptive and foster and kinship caregiver to know about. We kind of dive deep into things like executive function, um, impulse control, prenatal prenatal exposure, um, adverse childhood experiences, just so many things that um, we sometimes just mention along the way. But with Dr. Brown, he's using the research and the science to go deep with the, on these topics with us so that we can really understand um, the impacts that, that childhood trauma um and and prenatal exposure to drugs and alcohol have on the brain, um, which impacts really everything about our kids. So um so helpful. I suggest that you grab a pen and a piece of paper when you listen to those bonus episodes. Um and in in this special episode today Uh, I'm going to bring you the the podcast panel and each one of us podcasters from around the world get to ask Dr. Brown some questions uh, and he'll answer them. And this was really the first time I interacted with Dr. Brown and I was so impressed. It led to the bonus series. So just to kind of set the stage for that. But before we listen to the panel discussion, I do want to invite you to join our FASD support community. And while this podcast, the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, isn't specifically only about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, um, if you are a foster parent, an adoptive parent, or a kinship caregiver, you really need to have um, some knowledge on FASD, because there's a disproportionate number of children in the child welfare system who have been prenatally exposed uh, to alcohol, which is so damaging to the developing brain. Um, and sometimes we don't know, there's no, there's no diagnoses um, that our kids may have. Uh, and sometimes we only know that maybe they were exposed to drugs in utero. Um, and, and maybe maybe there's been some admission to that. Or some uh, documentation of that, but none on the alcohol. But typically, alcohol and drugs go hand in hand, and it's the alcohol that really does the most damage. Um, so, uh, and and two of my children adopted internationally have been diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. So this is something as an adoptive parent, I live with every day um, raising my my boys who are now teenagers, which just brings another whole set of challenges with it. Um, so this is this is something that probably affects you whether you realize it or not. September has been International FASD Awareness Month. So all of our Monday uh, podcasts, our, our regular episodes, have focused somewhat on FASD. We've interviewed um, adults who are living with FASD. We've we've uh interviewed some parents and now I'm going to bring you this um, panel today, but uh, myself and another podcast po- podcast host, <laughs> um, hosting adoptive mom, uh, who's also on the panel, who led the panel, um, Natalie Vecchione of FASD Hope, and I are collaborating together to bring you hope for the FASD journey, which is a virtual support community. For us caregivers, raising individuals with an FASD, whether they've been diagnosed or not, whether we know it for sure or not, um, join us, check it out. Um, I know that you will just feel so supported and not alone uh, in this journey um, when you join us. It's a faith-based community, uh, which just means that Natalie and I are both... Um, Christians and we love God and we rely on Him to get us through these challenging days. Um, so we're going to be talking about all the stuff involving our children and the challenges and um, you know things that we've come across that have helped us. Sharing resources, sharing um, you know advice. We we can't diagnose. We're just moms on this journey and can just share from our forty combined years of experience. Um, but we, we, we do talk about our faith sometimes. So we want you to know that that is, um, part of, you know, what, what we will be contributing at times as well. Um, uh, but the, the online community includes, um, two monthly online support group meetings via Zoom and one VIP conversation each month, which is where we bring in a special guest. And we've got Kenny LaJoy lined up. Rebecca Talou lined up another uh, mother-daughter team uh, coming up in January, which will be um, a good friend of mine who adopted her daughter when her daughter was just a nine-month-old baby adopted from Russia, and her daughter is now in college but has FAS. So um, they're going to be sharing their story on the VIP conversation, and then our community members can ask questions right to our guest. So it's kind of like a, like a live podcast almost. So it's going to be super fun. And we also have a private Facebook group that members will be able to um, use and interact with us and each other. And every Saturday, Natalie and I will take turns bringing you a video devotional, some encouragement for the week, um, right in that Facebook group. So. A whole lot of support we're offering you. It is only $15 a month and you kind of have this full on all access to Natalie and I, um, and all of, um, these resources. So for m- more details to learn, um, or to learn about the community, to join the community, visit justicefororphansny.org backslash training backslash FASD. And we will include Uh, the link in the show notes for this podcast so you can find it super easy. So I hope you'll check that out. Also, um, remember, as I mentioned at the top, our bonus episodes with Dr. Jared Brown, um, who specializes in trauma, FASD, autism, and so much more. Um, I'm recording a bonus series of episodes with him focusing on topics of particular interest to adoptive and foster parents, uh, like I said, such as we've, we've talked on prenatal trauma, complex trauma, attachment, FASD, screen time, inappropriate sexual behaviors, and so much more. Uh, these regular episodes that you're listening to today of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop on Mondays. The special series with Dr. Brown drops on Fridays, and you will not want to miss those. And finally, If you are an adoptive or foster parent or caregiver of an individual prenatally exposed to alcohol or other substances, be sure to check out all of the resources on our website specifically for this parenting journey. In addition to the Hope for the FASD Journey support community, I'm leading a virtual Introduction to FASD workshop uh, on Thursday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, And and if you aren't quite sure if your child may have an FASD, um, if you want to learn more to see if that's a possibility so that you can pursue a diagnosis with a professional. Um, Of course, I can't diagnose. I'm, you know, I'm just a mom on the journey, but I can share what I, I know and I can share what I have been trained to share Um, as a Facets uh, Facilitator of the Facets Neurobehavioral Model um, and a lot of the other trainings that I've had over the years, I bring to the table and really kind of unpack um, the the, the basics of FASD so you can have um, a better insight into what may be going on and um, just kind of introduce Strategies that can help you on your parenting journey, and to see if you want to dive deeper into some more training on that. Um, So, you can register online and learn more about it um, at justicefororphansny.org. Again, you're going to click on the training tab, and then in the drop down menu, you'd click on FASD. Um, So, we want you to get signed up. It's Thursday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be sending a Zoom link to everybody who registers. It's a 90-minute workshop, and we're offering it for $15 a person, so you can check that out. Uh, Links, again, in the show notes. Now, to our global podcast panel. My soul sister, like I mentioned, Natalie Vecchione of FASD Hope, assembled this panel of fellow podcasters who are lighting that spark and kindling a fire around the world on behalf of the global FASD community. So listen in as Natalie and I, along with Kurt Lewis of Pregnancy and Alcohol, the Surprising Reality podcast out of Australia, Gilberto, Gilberto Spencer of Wired Differently, Rewire Your Brain podcast, also out of Australia, and Robbie Seal of FASD Family Life out of Canada. Uh, We podcasters each present Dr. Jared Brown with questions uh, that are really, you know, on our minds, on our hearts to ask. So here is the panel discussion, and I will connect back with you at the end. So enjoy the panel discussion.
0: FASD, a panel discussion with Dr. Jared Brown. Our first question is from Kurt Lewis. Kurt, I'm going to pass the baton to you.
2: Hello. Yes, this is Kurt Lewis, live from Australia. Well, as live as you get from a recording. Uh, my first question is, it's a threefold question. It is an unfortunate fact that individuals with FASD are disproportionately... Disreportion, more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system. It does not matter where a person may live. It, this is still a fact. I mean, earlier this year, you, were, you Jared, were the lead um, author in a research article titled Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder and Confabulation in the Psycho Legal Setting, A Beginner's Guide for the Criminal Justice for Forensic Mental Health and Legal Interviewers. In this article, it, you stated, once entangled in the criminal justice system, individuals with FASD are at disadvantage at every stage of the legal process. One of the examples you, you give about this disadvantage during is during police questioning. You, police tactics may lead to confabulation and a false confession. As we know, that confabulation occurs when, a, um, when any person unintentionally fills a gap um, in their memory with information that's inaccurate it's this can be something that occurred at a different time or can be entirely imagined and false and it's it's as we know it's an unavoidable part of FASD so my my question is threefold if that's okay but it basically boils down to how should um professionals win the in the criminal justice system such as police and lawyers deal with people with FASD so they are not you know, do not give false information and are not further entangled. And how, as a society, can we protect uh, all the people with FASD from our criminal justice system?
3: Yeah, hey, you bet. Thank you, Kirk. Very, very important question. So, regardless of the individual who comes into contact with the criminal justice or legal arena, we want to ensure that the information being obtained from that person is accurate and truthful and complete and credible and coherent. When we start thinking about the deficits associated with FASD, unfortunately, we have to call all of those things into question. Why might that be the case? Because if we just look at the very nature of FASD and some of the cognitive impairments that can result, higher levels of impulsivity. So. A suspect, a defendant, a witness who has high levels of impulsivity may have a difficult time kind of putting on the brakes and pausing and really reflecting and thinking through their questions. Poor judgment, unfortunately, is very common among people with FASD. We know developmental immaturity. We know most people with FASD function several years younger than their chronological age. When we're thinking of cognitive impairments, executive functioning impairments, all of those things I use interchangeably, the very nature of having cognitive-based impairments can impact a person's decision-making capabilities, reasoning, problem-solving, Abstract thinking abilities, that's basically like linking cause and effect, understanding consequences, seeing the gray in areas. A lot of times people with FASD are sleep deprived because they're dealing with sleep issues. That's just a whole nother can of worms to open up. Many people, unfortunately, with FASD also have trauma histories. So now if you're sprinkling trauma into the mix, sleep deprivation, cognitive impairments, Most people with FASD, unfortunately, are dealing with co-occurring mental health issues. There are so many layers of this to take into account, and it's not just one. Most people, in my experience with FASD, who come into contact with the criminal justice system are dealing with a host of different limitations, barriers. And oftentimes, then, the interviewer, regardless if it's a police officer, a lawyer, a forensic examiner, most of the time, at least in my experience, and according to research, they don't have advanced training or understanding and knowledge about the complexities of working with someone who has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And if we start thinking about like the topic of confabulation, confabulation, if introduced into any arena, particularly the criminal justice system, that really calls into question everything. Confabulation's false memory creation. The person who confabulates is going to believe with certainty what they're saying, even though it can be a completely made-up memory the person doesn't even realize they're doing. It could be a memory that's partially true, but then elements of things that are not true are weaved into it, or it could be a memory that's taken out of temporal context, Good example of that would be, let's say someone with FASD who's confabulating is interviewed by a police officer and that person tells the police officer something that happened to them this morning. When they later find out, that person's talking about something that happened to them two years ago or five years ago. So they get dates and times mixed up. Confabulation can happen from a host of situations cognitive impairments, high-stress interviews, memory issues, confusion, worry, stress. And when we start thinking about confabulation, that is only one type of false memory. But when we're looking at false memory literature, false memories can feel convincing to the individual. They can feel disturbing. The person can have an emotional reaction to a false memory. They can feel real. They're vivid and scary. So a lot of times, false memories, people can't distinguish between the two. So it gets very, very confusing. So again, whoever's listening to this, just think confabulation can be completely imagined. It could be partially true. It could be taken out of temporal context. In some cases, it could be inspired by like popular media or social media. There's plenty of cases I've consulted on where the person is it seems like almost addicted to like social media they're on online numerous hours a day so they're starting to read all these stories and now they start thinking what they're reading online or seeing on tv or hearing in a music video that's actually happened to them so it gets very very confusing there's something also called source monitoring errors. I don't want to get too far deep in the weeds with folks, but it's another really important topic for us to be aware of when we're thinking about what we're talking about today. Source monitoring errors is when someone gets the source of their memory mixed up. Kurt, let's say you and I are walking down the street, we witness a car accident. If we have bad memory, if we're if our brains aren't working properly, We might go home and start watching TV and getting things mixed up. Did we actually witness that event or did we see it on TV? And then there's something. The blue car
2: or red car. or That
3: too. Yeah. That's basically the misinformation effect you're referring to. I would recommend people being aware of what that literature is too. Fascinating research. And a component of source monitoring is something called reality monitoring. Source monitoring. We get. The source of the information mixed up, reality monitoring is, did we actually witness it or did we actually, was it a dream? So it's kind of reality-based deficit. Sometimes it could be like rooted in like fantasy proneness if someone has like a really overactive imagination. Worst case scenario, when confabulation is weaved into the criminal justice system unknowingly, it could contribute to false confessions false alibis, uh, inaccurate witness testimony. So it has profound impacts on, again, all stages of the criminal justice system. Again, I wish we could spend all day talking about this topic, but when we're thinking about confabulation too, you got to understand the topic of suggestibility. Compliance is another big topic to be aware of. Acquiescence, gullibility, naivete, and even memory distrust. Memory distrust is when somebody doesn't really trust their memory and they go along with what other people are saying. Sometimes when that person is in a position of power, that person would go along with that person who might have a uniform on because they seem credible when in fact maybe that might not always be the case. So those are just a few things to think about. I don't know, Kurt, do you want me to give a few like interviewing strategies and different tips for people to be aware of?
2: A brief brief overview would be great, really. I think we'd be all very keen to hear like, what are some of the strategies involved? How do you avoid confabulation and the other pitfalls you've mentioned?
3: we can't ever avoid it 100%. So we always want to be on the lookout for it. We want to be aware of the research. But when you're interviewing any special needs population, I think it's important to take into account their developmental, emotional, and social age over their chronological age. Because what happens if a police officer or a lawyer is interviewing someone who's 18 years old chronologically who has FASD, but doesn't take into account that person has a brain of a 10-year-old. So you got to be careful on the wording you use, the vocabulary, the complexity of the question. Multi-step questions can be tricky. So making questions very concrete. I always recommend avoiding yes or no questions or true or false questions, unless you're fact-checking and verifying and having that person repeat back to you in their own words. Because the last thing you want to do is ask a a bunch of yes or no questions where the person gives the verbal head nod saying, Hey, yep, I get it. But when in fact they had no idea what they just agreed to, sometimes they parrot back things. You really got to fact check, verify. You really want to be aware too, of not using close ended questions. You want to be careful. This is where it gets a little tricky. If you ask questions over and over again, the same question to someone, there is some research, not necessarily in the FASD world, but just the general literature. That person, when they hear that question being asked over and over and over again, they may change their initial response because they're thinking what they initially said to that interviewer is not what the interviewer wanted to hear. This is where it gets tricky. So repeated lines of questioning could be a factor in some cases of confabulation as well. So anytime we're looking at these kind of topics, you want to review multiple data sources. So you don't want to just probably interview the client. You want to look at records, talk to collateral sources. In some cases, depending on the individual and the complexity of their needs, they may need like a neuropsychological test. Because a lot of times if this person is thrusted into the criminal justice system, the justice system needs more information on how to effectively interview and work with the individual. I think it's important to obviously fact check, verify, clarify statements, seeking out partnerships with organizations and even consultants and trainers, getting trainers to come into these organizations, law enforcement corrections, probation, legal arenas. Learning about these things is going to be very, very helpful. And if this is introduced into treatment as well, if let's say the person's court ordered to go to like group treatment or therapy, that can have detrimental impacts in a clinical setting as well. So you really want to be aware, not just in the criminal justice system, but the mental health arena. So those are just a few things to consider when we're talking about this topic.
0: Thank you for such a wonderful question. Uh, we are here talking with Jared Brown, Dr. Jared Brown. Um, I'm Natalie from FASD Hope, and I'll be asking the next question. And my question is also kind of a, a wish list, too. There's a backstory behind it, um, but I uh, hope to get a couple of good points um, about this topic. So um, my question is is wishful thinking and a question. Knowing what we know jared about the transition from later teen high school age individuals with fasd moving into the young adult stage really being finished with school we all know that there's a significant lack of services and programs that can help our young adults with these life stage transitions especially in I, I, we're you know coping with this with our family especially when when that individual that young adult that has an fasd has peers who are neurotypical, and they've moved on. Um, what I've seen as a mom, I've seen three really critical needs. I've seen many needs, but three critical needs stand out to me. Um, the need for mentorship, the need for work and life skills coaching, and the need for social support. So if anyone out there is listening and has a significant chunk of money that would like to you know, start up a, a, an FASD young adult program, this question is for you. Um, If we're looking at other programs for young adults with brain-based diagnosis, for example, autism, they have a wonderful young adult program. Um, If the FASD community were to get funding to develop such a program, how would you recommend addressing these critical needs? Or if you're aware of successful models and other programs, um, and what are the most important protective factors um, in helping our young adults making that transition? towards interdependence.
3: Thank you, Natalie. It sounds like we might be here for 10 hours. So that's a big one. <laughs> no, that's okay. I would look, there's a lot of lenses to look through. Maybe let's start with adaptive functioning. That is a huge topic to be aware of, especially when people are transitioning from like a K through 12 setting into college, work, whatever, more independence, In some cases, people with FASD might have like an average IQ, but everyone with FASD is typically going to have adaptive functioning deficits. So on paper, if we look at just their IQ score, that can be misleading. And I've seen this happen a lot, where if you just rely on the IQ score and you don't take into account their adaptive functioning capabilities... That is one reason of many why so many folks with FASD slip through the cracks, particularly after high school. Adaptive functioning is real-world application, social responsibility, social competence, daily life skills. How do you manage money? How do you take care of personal hygiene? Do you know how to pay your rent on time? Do you know how to get from point A to point B using public transportation? Do you know when to turn on the burner, when to turn off the burner, how to cook? I mean, those are all adaptive functioning skills. So we really want to look through that adaptive functioning lens. There's three areas of adaptive functioning that you want to be aware of. There's the social skill element of it. There's the practical skill element of it and the conceptual skills. Those would be a few areas for folks to look into. When thinking of this question, Natalie, too, I really think it's important to understand comprehension. And unfortunately, at least in my experience, all too often, especially adults, most of my work's been with adults, but a lot of times they deal with comprehension deficits we're on the surface, it might be hard to detect that. Again, if we're asking yes or no questions, we're relying on like verbal head nods, it can kind of give that false impression that that person comprehends what's going on. But when we think of comprehension deficits, a couple questions always ask yourself, are there deficits in like auditory comprehension? So if you're asking a question to someone, Does that person with FASD take in those words and does their brain make sense of it? Auditory processing. What about reading comprehension? Do they understand what they read? Listening comprehension, information processing, being aware of language, like pragmatic language, expressive language, receptive language. And when we're thinking about this, developmental immaturity again, Truly taking into account their emotional, social, and developmental age over their chronological age? What's their reasoning abilities like? Their decision making, their judgment? How do they solve problems? When they become confused, are they good self advocates to be able to ask or just really state, I don't understand what you're saying. Can you repeat that? At least in my experience, most people with FASD haven't learned that skill. So teaching those skills is very, very helpful. And regardless of whatever they're dealing with, whatever stressor, barrier, limitation, what are some possible contributing factors that could exacerbate some of these problem areas? Fatigue. I think focusing on getting sleep under control as much as possible, but also managing daytime fatigue. I can think of several examples before COVID when I saw people face-to-face. They come into the office, they'd seem alert. Within 10 minutes, they were just shut down. They were so tired. They need more frequent breaks. Be aware of fatigue. Fatigue can be a trigger for full-blown irritability, rage, all kinds of stuff. What kind of discomfort is the person dealing with? Not just emotional discomfort, but physical discomfort. Maybe they've had a bunch of joint pain. Arthritis, maybe there's digestive health issues going on. So, any type of discomfort the person's dealing with, be aware of how that could trigger something. And a lot of times, we know, I know some of the podcasts we talked about alexithymia. If someone's dealing with alexithymia and has a hard time putting their words and emotions and being able to process that, you as the clinician, you as the caregiver, You can visually tell the person might be uncomfortable and distressed, but that person may not be able to have the words to describe it. Hunger, overeating, undereating, blood sugar levels going too high, going too low, fear, anxiety, worry, frustration, sensory overload, any confusion. Those are just a few of the possible contributing factors that can get in the way of that person living a healthy, successful life. Through an adaptive functioning lens, too, I think we really want to take into account social scalability. A lot of the adults that I've worked with and lots of cases I've consulted on, the person has had a history of like social unawareness, where they have a really hard time with perspective taking or understanding social rules or norms. Sometimes this can lead to higher incidence of becoming more isolated or more rejected from people. So unfortunately, bullying and teasing histories might be a little more common. And if this is the case, sometimes the person may go inward and be dealing with more internalizing distress that can contribute to self-esteem issues and shame and guilt. Those are toxic emotions that can get in the way of anyone being successful in life. Taking into account again, Comprehension and communication. A few other questions you want to ask yourself too. Does that person have a difficult time hearing words? There's actually some literature in the FASD world that there might be higher incidence of hearing impairment in this population. So, working with a medical health provider to rule that out. Just a lot of variables, a lot of moving parts to take into account. So, kind of on the the strengths based side of it, now we talked about a lot of the deficits. Focusing on strengths-based approaches, I think, are very helpful. Capitalizing on the person's hobbies, their skills, their strengths, their attributes, their positive qualities. Really focusing on empowerment and encouragement, even hopeful thinking. Anything we can do to help promote confidence in the individual, self-determination, really pro-social decision-making. And helping that person learn how to become a more self determined person. Easier said than done. But if someone is, tr- if we're trying to help someone become more of a self determined person, teaching them how to set goals more effectively, how to make more pro social decisions. Helping them see more options. I've, At least in my experience, a lot of people at FASD are black and white. Helping them start starting to see the gray in things. If they have all or nothing thinking, working on those things. All or nothing thinking can be very problematic. And really focusing on positive self-talk too, I think, and gratitude and optimism and resilience and those kind of things. But at the core of becoming like a self-determined individual, promoting choice making. Decision-making, problem-solving, self-advocacy skills, more self-awareness, and even focusing on self-management and self-regulation are just a few things to take into account. Natalie, do you want me to
0: go a little bit deeper into some of these things?
3: I I don't know
0: about my friends, my podcasting friends, but I have a notebook that I keep for notes whenever Jared's on our show because Jared, you're just such a wealth of information. So no, this has been fantastic. And now I'm going to go try to find somebody that we can start some type of program. My friend Gilberto Spencer actually has a great follow-up question to my question. So I'm going to pass the microphone to Gilberto Spencer of Wired Differently. Gilberto? What's your question?
4: Thanks, Natalie. Hi, Gerald. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Walter. Gerald. <laughs> it's good to talk to you again. My question, yeah, it's it's um, a follow up question from the one that Natalie uh, just asked you, and is why do you think that medical providers never never mention? coaching approaches as part of the strategies that will help us because I just happened to the same way I found out FSD uh, at, 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 a le- at, at a later stage in my life just by coincidence and by trying to put things together is the same way that I, I found out coaching and for me it has been so helpful I have improved and and I always advocate for coaching approaches. And I know that you are also a fan of executive, executive coaching, executive functioning coaches and uh, improve metacognition. But in my journey, and I think it's the case for many of us, I saw many specialists, all types and kind of doctors that you can think of, but no one ever mentioned uh coaching approaches. Why do you think is that medical providers never mention this? Is this part of the um maybe they don't know about it? Maybe they don't. I mean, why what do you think it's not? Is it is it is it not on the radar? What do you think is the case or it's happening here? Because I, I think it'll it'll it can make a huge difference. And before you answer, I want us. Second, also like what Natalie said, if we could, if we could create like a program where we uh, um, teach this, it'll be amazing because I, I can talk from my experience. It is the best thing that we can do.
3: Well, thank you for the fantastic question. I personally think that Most medical health providers do not receive training in FASD, or if they do, it's just a brief mention in med school. I I know there's a study, I don't remember when, it's been several years ago now, where I think the study found that med school talked just briefly about FASD. So it's not on the radar, for one. I know that medical schools are teaching more about autism. So I think what happens in some cases, people with FBSD obviously look like so many other types of disorders. They're oftentimes misdiagnosed. I think for medical doctors too, they're looking through a different lens and they don't think it's not on their radar, like referral to an executive functioning coach. Now, however... There are some providers, there are some programs now that are moving more in a integrative behavioral health model, a whole person holistic model. I'm actually developing a whole series of trainings for an organization in the United States, where we're going to be talking about integrative behavioral health. I love that field of study. I actually have done several trainings that focus on psychoneuroimmunology. I am just convinced that's the way our field should go, and I'm not just talking about this within the context of FASD, but if we were to look through that lens, like a psychoneuroimmunology lens, we're looking at the brain, we're understanding the brain-body connection, we're understanding how the digestive health plays into this, how inflammation plays into this, how stress, how sleep. So there's a lot of moving parts, obviously. And if you start looking through an integrated behavioral lens, I truly think if you were to incorporate executive functioning, skills building, coaching, modeling, teaching into that, I think improved outcomes would absolutely happen. If we look at this just through an FASD lens, at least in my experience and some of the articles that have been published briefly mention this, that oftentimes... Insight-based therapeutic approaches don't work that well with people with FASD because of the fact when people with FASD are asked like how and why questions and if they're dealing with like abstract reasoning and they have a hard time like connecting the dots that can be tricky in some cases and a lot of the researchers lean to the fact that focusing on skills building modeling coaching teaching role playing practicing these things over the long haul and not just in like a controlled setting, but like on the school bus, in the, on the playground at home, helping these skills become more generalizable and that can promote adaptive functioning as well. So Gilberto, what do you think? Anything you want me to go a little bit deeper into with that?
4: Uh, No, thank you, Gerald. I think that's, that's great. It, it really helps helps me understand why is that I never was referred to, and it makes sense. It, it makes sense that um, it's not on, on the radar, but we'll keep working into making some noise and letting them know that this is really helpful. And this can this can be. I I just I mean, if I look back, I I always want to tell everybody like. You can you can be on this side too. Like I just want everybody to know, like the difference between day and night that these uh, approaches can make, and I hope that people start looking into them. Thank you. And I think
3: Gilberto too. Regardless of the diagnosis, if it's FASD or not, if if we use approaches that are individually tailored to the person's life experiences. Strengths and limitations, that's going to be more helpful. If we approach this through a non-judgmental lens and we stay like kind and calm and curious and patient, I think that's helpful. I also think if we specifically look through an FASD lens, focusing on proving sleep, being aware of attachment patterns, we know that a high percentage of people with FASD are dealing with some dysregulated attachment patterns. Anything we can do to instill safety and security and trust through kind of almost like a trauma-informed lens, which is really in, instilling hope and empathy and really promoting health and wellness and positive growth, I, I don't think we can go wrong using those approaches, regardless, again, of the person or diagnosis.
4: And, and for me, I mean, now that you mentioned, like, empathy and being... Loving and all of this i think for me the coaching approaches has helped me to be all of those things towards myself because i think for us what is really i mean besides the challenges i think all of i mean how hard we are on ourselves and the internal dialogue it's what just makes things worse and this is when we uh like go off and I don't know like the things that you see because we're always telling ourselves that we're not enough, that we're not worthy, that we cannot do things that everything's wrong with us and and the coaching approaches is what it's what helped me to see all of these challenges from a to be curious about what's happening, about what is that I experience, to be more loving and caring towards myself and to to don't judge and be more accepting and and that has that has changed everything because sometimes the biggest challenges are the ones that we that we I, I mean the challenges are hard, but the other part is the challenges that we, we, we put ourselves, right? Like all of the things that we, we make on our minds too. I
3: think when I, when we talk about Robbie's question today, there's going to be some things I'm going to talk about in that section too, that I think are going to relate directly. But when I'm hearing you say it without saying it, self-compassion, I think that is a a very important component is really really understanding self-compassion, self-forgiveness, and just, you know, we're doing the best we can sometimes. Sometimes today's a hard day. You know, we're just, maybe we can only get one thing done today. Cutting ourselves some slack, having some grace too. Those are all important for all human beings, I think.
4: Yeah, and I think self-compassion is really important because as we, as we mentioned in, in our talk that we had before, you said, I also have challenges. I also have limitations. And I want to tell other people who are listening to us that, it's challenges, limitations are not exclusive for us with FASD because even Gerald said I have my own limitations, I have my own challenges and please don't forget that it's not exclusive for us. We, every single person, no matter no matter who they are we will have strengths and gifts and challenges and limitations regardless if you have it or not. So just be, be more accepting, be don't be too too tough on yourself.
3: Can't agree more. We're all in this together. We all have, yeah, strengths, limitations, and challenges. So, yeah, 100%. Thank you. Great question. I appreciate it.
5: It's me. It's me. Hi, everybody. This is Robbie Seal. And I have a question for Jared um, that follows up. I think really well with what Gilberto was saying, and it's it's from a parent actually. This is a, a question from a parent. Before I get into that, let me just um, piggyback on what Gilberto was saying. Um, Gilberto, I have challenges every day, my friend, even today, I couldn't even find the question I wanted to ask on the podcast. I had to ask Natalie, what the heck was my question? So I Mm -hmm. have memory challenges and I have challenges finding my own emails. So, you know, the struggle is real guys. And so is success. (laughs) So here we go. Jared, my friend, this is a question from a parent. And she wrote to me, hey, Robbie, I was wondering if you have any good strategies to share about behavior. Our foster son gets very frustrated when he does not get the answer he's looking for. Let me just say all parents, caregivers with kids with FASD feel this every day. Anyway, and he needs to get the answer many, 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 many times from everybody who's in the room or in the car or anywhere he is. And he's only three years old he yells and he talks louder and louder and louder and if we don't understand he starts crying hysterically. Jared, any insights?
3: <laughs> Maybe let's let's look through a lens of rumination and catastrophizing starting out. I see this all the time. So rumination it's a problematic thinking style. We all have it from time to time. Chronic sleep deprivation in and of itself can contribute to rumination, a lot of things. So if somebody ruminates, they have a tendency to fixate on the negative a lot of times, or like they fixate on the negative emotion and that thought gets stuck in their mind. And it, it's almost like a snowball effect. I've seen this happen a lot with some adults with FASD, where it may start out small and within minutes or hours, it's just grows and grows and grows and grows. So it's really think of it as a stress magnifier in a way. So if we're talking about like rumination, it's just fuel on a fire that's already kind of burning. So we got a small smoldering fire. Rumination poured onto it just amplifies it. Worst case scenarios, it can impair thinking. It, has a negative, it can have a real negative impact on relationships with other people. It can get in the way of problem solving. Rumination in and of itself has been shown to increase anxiety and depression and contribute to increases in sleep problems to name a few, catastrophizing and rum- rumination oftentimes go hand in hand. But catastrophizing—think of that as like a cognitive distortion or a thinking error, where the person has like irrational thinking. So sometimes you might see the person catastrophizing by thinking the worst-case scenario, and you, as the parent or caregiver, don't have any idea how that person came up with that idea. Like. You're just not seeing it through their lens. And this can lead to higher levels of fear, anxiety, worry, hopelessness, confusion. And all of those things can be an accelerant. In some cases, have you ever, do you have a child or an adult with FASD who struggles with motivational deficits? There might be some connection between rumination, catastrophizing, And some of these things that could get in the way of motivation and it can get in the way of that person having a positive view of the future. And then this stuff can trickle down into more self-blame where maybe the person doesn't articulate that they're dealing with a lot of self-blame, but they have a tendency to now self-criticize. They might be even really highly sensitive. So it's like walking on eggshells in some cases around that person Feelings of incompetence can creep into there. Feelings of like self-doubt, this can really impact assertiveness, and it can be a potential factor for increases in vulnerability and victimization. And unfortunately, we know all too well that people with FASD are highly vulnerable. And unfortunately, if you believe what the research says, a high percentage do become victims of crime and other things throughout their life. When we're thinking of this question, Robbie, I think I like to look through a self-regulation lens as well. How does that person manage emotion? Just ask just some open-ended questions, just looking at patterns. When they have these emotions, how do they express them then? If you're noticing patterns, caregivers, this would be a great time to consult with a qualified specialist. Maybe these are some target areas for intervention. Does that person have a hard time directing attention? There's something related to self-regulation of attention where the person may not capture what you're saying because they drift off. Maybe they mind wander. Maybe they start focusing on something else. They have a hard time staying focused on the task at hand. Do you notice that person struggling with initiating behaviors like being a self-starter? They just don't know where to start. They don't know how to end something. That could be an issue of time management. It could be an issue with a whole bunch of things. These are some abstract concepts. These can get in the way of decision-making, solving problems, and recognizing and correcting mistakes. Those are just a few things to think of that could be target areas. But also, we really want to be aware of, I think, perspective-taking when we're talking about this very topic. Robbie, you and I did a recording earlier on theory of mind. Theory of mind relates to perspective taking. I truly believe the question you asked today, we have to understand theory of mind as well. Theory of mind deficits get in the way of that person really understanding the internal mental states of other people. And if you're ever working with someone that has poor perspective taking, on the surface, that person could come off and looking like they're bored or distracted or selfish or even callous. And that can get in the way of peer relationships. That can get in the way if that person's ever working on a team or on a, an organized sporting event. It can lead to breakdowns in relationships where the person, that's not their intent. They're just dealing with some brain-based impairments. And then if we move into strategies about some of these things, especially around like obsessive thinking, rumination, the very nature of finding a good therapist or counselor who understands these things and looks at it through an FASD lens would be very, very helpful. And it's not just in person. There's plenty of research to support the fact that telehealth-based services are sometimes just as effective Meditation has been shown to help with obsession, like obsessional thinking. If you can help slow down the mind and body, that's a great thing. Yoga has been shown to be helpful. I am not aware of any studies that have looked at yoga within the context of FASD per se, but there's been several studies that have looked at it within the context of autism and ADHD and other types of neurodevelopmental disorders. Teaching the person how to self-reflect more. Maybe it's a journal. Just slowing the pace down of whatever question you're asking. Sitting in silence. Exercise has absolutely been shown to help with these things. Just the very nature of getting outside, moving around. Talk to a healthcare provider before implementing these things. Exercise, very, very helpful. i Part of that integrative health series I'm putting together through a behavioral health lens, I'm going to be talking about green space and blue space. It's very common sense, but people are shocked to learn how many studies have been done on the health benefits of people just walking in nature, in the woods. That's green space. Blue space, being near rivers, lakes, the ocean, that is very, very therapeutic. Being aware too. If we look at strategies that could help reduce rumination in general, this is not just for FASD, but this is just like general rumination. Teach limit setting. Maybe if the person has a tendency to fixate on things and get stuck, maybe you use a timer. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Teach them what 10 minutes feels like. Make it visual. Use a timer. Journaling. If you can incorporate journaling, but maybe the person has some writing deficits. Maybe it's an auditory journal. They can record their thoughts. Utilize solution-focused approaches too and strengths-based approaches. Identify those triggers. We all have triggers. Helping them become more self-aware of their triggers. Sometimes rumination may start out as low-grade irritability. Robbie, I believe you and I are doing a series this fall on threats to emotional health. This all goes to the heart of that. We can understand the triggers. Very, very helpful. When I get frustrated, I start feeling warm in my body. I know that's a trigger for me. Take a break. Just go get a glass of water. Go for a quick walk. Teaching people how to be more aware of the body sensations and how that links to emotional and all of those things are very helpful. Forgiveness strategies might be helpful. Helping them transform like self-defeating thoughts into more positive thinking actions, helping them kind of rewrite the story as well, I think can be very, very helpful. Engage the support system, get the support system on board, educate them, helping them and just be kind, calm, patient, curious. All those things are very helpful. And if you dig deep into this literature on rumination, you're probably aware of like thought stopping techniques, So if the person gets stuck on something, how do you switch their brain over? Easier said than done, but sometimes reading a book can help, watching a movie, listening to their favorite song, playing a game, doing some sort of musical instrument. I can remember I consulted with a group home last year. The client had FASD and had some profound behavioral problems. Uh, What we found helpful for this person Obviously, they got it cleared with their medical doctor. This person really enjoyed equine therapy. This person also really enjoyed going swimming with their staff at the Y. This person also enjoyed doing planks. That helped shift her brain from all of this negative energy and it got it away. So everyone's individualized. These are some general just strategies that I found helpful. And I guess the one other thing I would, I would say with this too Disconnect from the screen. The screen, I just believe, is just so toxic if we are on it too many hours a day. I can feel in my body, if I'm sitting up late at night watching TV again, I don't sleep well at night. If you disconnect and just decompress, let the mind and body decompress, I think that's helpful for anything. And I do think that helps provide more clarity and insight and wisdom for that person as well. Robbie, do you want some more strategies? I can go a lot deeper if you'd like.
5: I'd love, thanks, Jared. I'd love to ask a follow-up question to what you were saying. And of course, like Natalie, I'm taking ferocious notes and I, I don't turn the page. So it's all scribbly, scribbly, scribbly. I have to decipher it later.
3: But well, I hope you my- can read your writing.
5: <laughs> maybe, maybe I can. Again, I have deficits. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a follow-up question and that is, I, I love what you're saying. I can, in- I can put that into my life. And as it relates to my uh, kids who um, g- get stuck in thoughts and catastrophize and that sort of thing, I want to bring it back though, to this mom with this three-year-old in the mommy van, driving everybody crazy, asking the same question over and over and over again. Um, and and I can see some of the strategies you've mentioned here as being effective, um, such, a- such as um, Thought stopping behavior. Also being aware of, is this child uncomfortable? Or is this a, a curiosity? Or maybe this is, is this child's mind wandering? So that's what I was thinking. That, that's, that's where I think we could have some strategies. And and just how does this relate with also perseveration that, like you said, that stuck thinking and um, yeah. in the, Like in the mommy van, um, talk about distracted driving. Like that's a challenging space to be when you've got multiples and then you got multiples with FASD. Um, you can ask the RCMP officer who stopped me when I was driving too fast because again, distracted driving with multiples with FASD. Um, but what can we do in the minivan? Well, we might offer a snack. We might ask a follow-up question, right, Jared? Like how do we change this behavior? My son used to always ask the question, do you have a dog? And the person would answer no. And then his follow-up question would be, well, what's your dog's name? And then if he didn't get a satisfactory answer, he'd ask, do you have a dog? And this would go on over and over and over again with every person he met when he was three and four years old. Jared, how how do you respond to, you know, do you have a dog and what's your dog's name? When the answer is no.
3: Well, I think first and foremost, safety needs to be taken into account. So if things get a little too stressed in the van, pull over, take a break even if you're running behind safety number one. So when we're talking about young, young kids in general, obviously their brains aren't developed. So art, coloring, Play-Doh, something in the hands, uh, a younger child like that may truly benefit from working with like a sensory processing specialist or occupational therapist, where then that professional can teach that caregiver different strategies so engage the the senses i think is going to be very very helpful could that child be communicating an unwanted need in the moment i'm only this i'm not giving any medical advice here but here's something to think about in some cases could the person be dealing with an undiagnosed food allergy where they don't even know that maybe that person had breakfast that morning, but I'm just giving an example. Maybe they had cereal and they have a food allergy to milk. No one's ever connected that dots. And that child is in such digestive discomfort. They can't name that. Working with a nutritionist, ruling out food allergies, food sensitivities. Could there be an undiagnosed sleep disorder that no one really thought of? Ruling out things. That's where I think it's always important to take a holistic view And stay very, very curious in those moments because there's usually more than one reason why these behaviors happen. Those are a few things to think about. As the person gets older, I'm sure some of you are familiar with like scaffolding interventions. Not a lot of literature in the FASD world, but you will find that come up a little bit specific in FASD. But scaffolding interventions are really breaking down like learning opportunities into smaller digestible chunks, not multitasking. Maybe it's starting with the easiest task first. Scaffolding interventions also use like different tools and resources and supports and structures. Maybe one example, if you have someone with FASD and they're dealing with some auditory or visual processing deficits and you're trying to teach an intervention, they might do well, with not only talking about it, but demonstrating it, having a picture, maybe it's having a video. I consulted on a case with a group home. I gave them a recommendation. If you wanna teach a skill, find a short video on YouTube that is talking about that skill, show the video to the person, talk about it, break it down, demonstrate it in the group home, demonstrate it outside, demonstrate it in the community, and do it over and over again in multiple settings. This scaffolding intervention should be collaborative in nature. So you want to kind of have a bottom up approach where you don't want to come in heavy and like kind of try to be the the hot-handed person and for caregivers this is easier said than done. Stay regulated. Your child is always observing you. If you're driving and you're distracted and you're on your phone, your child is watching that. If you become angry and start Talking loud, parental self regulation is so, so important. So, those are just a few other things I would recommend or suggest. How about instead of recommend, suggest?
5: Jared, thank you so much. And now I'm going to turn
1: it over to my friend Sandra
5: Flack. You're welcome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hey, I I was engrossed in Dr. Jared's answers (laughs) uh, to Robbie's question, especially. So, I was was taking notes as well. Um, And so, my question, I'm a mom of several adopted children uh, who came from traumatic backgrounds, uh, adopted internationally, spent time from birth to formative years in uh, orphanages, uh, diagnosed with, F- with FAS. Um, so I have found myself at times and my listener base for my podcast are also adoptive and foster parents, uh, so this question comes up a lot when we're dealing with certain behaviors, trying to kind of decipher: is this trauma? Is this you know from from adverse childhood experiences? Is this FASD? Like, what is the driving force behind the behaviors we're seeing? And. I oftentimes just assume it's sort of a combination of all of them thrown in together. But Dr. Jared, how do we know? How do we figure that out?
3: Thank you, Sandra. Big question. I know you and I are gonna be doing a whole series of talks on this. So I'll, I'll cover some basics on some of these things. But if we think of prenatal alcohol exposure, obviously that's a trauma in and of itself. But what else was going on in utero during pregnancy? It's not just the alcohol. There is literature to support the fact if the mother during pregnancy was dealing with high levels of stress, those stress hormones can have a negative impact on that developing child's brain and body. So we need to be aware of what else was going on in utero. High levels of stress, maybe tobacco use, maybe there was poverty, homelessness, food insecurity, Malnutrition. Um, Part of that integrated behavioral health series I'm doing for that other organization, I'm actually going to be talking about prenatal pollution exposure. There's a whole line of literature on that that's very scary. So it's not just the alcohol we need to take into account. I give a lot of talks on prenatal opioid exposure. There's a lot of literature coming out about that. So, was it alcohol and other drugs going on? So, let's start there. That's the foundation. What was going on in utero? A lot of different things. What about intergenerational transmissions of trauma? What happens if mom was in a domestic violence relationship? What happens if the mom's mom was dealing with high levels of trauma? So we really want to be aware of the topic of intergenerational transmissions of trauma. We won't have time to get into this today, but a couple key terms to be aware of, epigenetics, I would recommend your audience to be aware of. I would also recommend your audience to be aware of allostatic load. That's a fancy term of just basically wear and tear on the body over time. High levels of stress can prematurely age us and all kinds of things. And then telomeres. I would highly recommend learning about telomeres. Telomeres are the end caps on our chromosomes. And it's been shown that high levels of stress and trauma and adversity can erode those end caps and it's actually higher among people with trauma histories and mental health problems to name a few. So now as the child's born, they have FASD let's say, and now they're born into a chaotic living environment. They're exposed to neglect, abuse, it's fuel on the fire. How do you tell between the two? In some cases it might be near impossible But let's take FASD out of the equation now and just look at children who are exposed to high levels of abuse or neglect in childhood. Lower levels of IQ may be more common, higher levels of learning disability, problems with like complex visual attention issues. So a lot of kids with high levels of trauma in their history oftentimes look like they have ADHD. It can have a real negative impact on language, memory, planning, reasoning, problem solving. What do all those things sound like? Very common among people with FASD as well. So high levels of trauma, toxic stress, complex developmental trauma, a lot of those symptoms can oftentimes look like FASD and vice versa. What does the research say about people who are diagnosed with FASD who also have higher levels of adverse childhood experiences? Higher levels of neglect and abuse compared to kids without FASD. So kids with FASD may actually have more incidence of trauma compared to kids who've already had higher ACEs scores. So we need to take into account like poly trauma. It's not just one type of trauma. Multiple forms of trauma. There's something called betrayal trauma. Parental incarceration is a type of trauma for that child. Being thrusted into the child welfare arena is a type of trauma. Higher levels of empathy deficits have been reported among people with FASD who have higher incidence of trauma, higher incidence of behavioral difficulties, so more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, higher incidence of verbal and nonverbal communication challenges and working memory problems, and lower levels of inhibition. Inhibitions are internal parking brake or pause button. So FASD plus high levels of trauma have been shown to exacerbate those situations. Going a little bit deeper into this, Sandra, higher incidence of mental health challenges. So I would encourage any provider who's working with children, who has all of these unexplained behavioral problems, tons of mental health diagnoses, To become FASD informed, maybe the child doesn't have FASD, but if you become FASD informed and you utilize these approaches, I truly believe FASD informed approaches are helpful for any human being. Higher incidence of social challenges are reported among people with FASD and trauma histories. We know FASD in and of itself, obviously they're going to be dealing with social impairments. It's just fuel on the fire. They might have more avoidance in social relationships. I believe, don't quote me on the number, I think there's some studies that point to the fact around 70% of people with FASD also have insecure attachment patterns. There's two reasons for that. Some research has found that the very nature of prenatal alcohol exposure can damage parts of their brain responsible for attachment When you study attachment, I would encourage your audience to also learn about oxytocin, fascinating topic. But then if the child is also dealing with lots of abuse and neglect early on in life, that in and of itself can fracture that attachment pattern. So anyone working with someone with FASD, I think would benefit from not only using like a trauma-informed care approach, but also attachment-based interventions And on top of that, I would also put sleep kind of strategies. Almost everyone with people with FASD have sleep, and almost everyone with extensive trauma histories have sleep issues. You combine those two, I'm not saying 100%, but almost 100% of people are probably going to have some form of sleep issues. So getting sleep under control, very helpful, and becoming executive functioning informed would be a few things. Sandra, I've consulted on a case last year. The person had confirmed FASD and a horrific trauma history, lived in a group home, had a tendency to have higher incidence of maladaptive behavior. I'm pretty sure this person, just based on behavioral patterns, can't say with certainty, was dealing with theory of mind deficits and alexithymia, to name a few. So this person had a tendency to deal with rage control issues, physical aggression on themselves and others, had a high incident of dishonesty and confabulation. It gets confusing because we know confabulation, false memory creation, but in some cases the person with FASD may also have a history of lying. And then that lie gets so distorted in their memory, they lose track of, Did they make that up? And it kind of almost turns into confabulation. gets really tricky. I'm telling you all this because this person had a history of elopement behavior, running away, running into traffic, jumping out of moving cars, very, very dangerous behavior. And I believe, just in my opinion, obviously the FASD was a critical component, but all of the trauma in childhood, dysregulated that person's self-regulation capacity in the brain, as well as their ability to like view the world as safe. What we know from people that have fractured attachment patterns, sometimes they'll view safe situations that we all see as safe as very scary. And there's something called hostile attribution bias that I recommend your audience to be aware of, which we can dig into at another time. Those are a few things to think about. But if you're working with someone that has elopement behaviors, especially with FASD, I would recommend looking through a trauma lens, attachment lens, and some of these other lenses too. Sandra, do you want me to go any deeper into any of those things?
1: Oh, my goodness. I think we could be here all day if we did. Um, I I know I'm learning so much and it, it just rings so many bells because before I knew a whole lot about FASD, my husband and I got um, trauma training and, uh, you know, through Empowered to Connect and Dr. Per- Karen Purvis and the Connected Child. And we were learning all of that and applying that. And that, while it did help, we realized there was something more going on, which was the FASD. Um, so I was glad to hear you say that those um, trauma-competent uh, parenting strategies, uh, connection and whatnot does help and it does help. Uh, but I know I can't wait to have you on my podcast so we can really dive deep into the series and dig into all of this, but this was so helpful. Thank you so much.
3: Absolutely. One thing I forgot to mention, uh, Robbie, I think you and I did this podcast on the HPA access. When you were working with someone with FASD, and when you're working with someone with profound trauma histories, and then when you combine the two, you're probably gonna have some HPA access dysfunction. The HPA access, the H stands for hypothalamus, the P stands for pituitary, and the A stands for adrenal access. This is our brain's main stress response system. When that becomes dysregulated or damaged, it is linked to a host of physical health issues, mental health issues, behavioral health issues. Sometimes you might hear, it, you, some, I'm sure some of you have heard like adrenal fatigue. There's controversy if that really exists. It's really HPA access fatigue. I've seen this happen many times. After they calm down, after they become regulated, they look back on it and they say, I can't believe I did that. I'm so embarrassed. Their intent, their brain just was on overdrive. HPA access dysfunction, highly, highly recommend looking at that and learning some interventions. Taking a look at the podcast Robbie and I did, and Sandra, I can weave that into some of our talks on trauma. It's a fascinating topic. It is our main stress response system. It relates to like cortisol secretion in our body and other kind of neurohormones. It's our kind of our main hub in our brain that plays a huge link in our endocrine system. And it links to our gut. And our gut has a bi-directional communication with our brain. Not to bore you guys, I would recommend learning about the vagus nerve as well. Just fascinating and polyvagal theory. So those are a few things. All of those things are like graduate courses in and of themselves. But if you can learn the basics, a lot of good videos on YouTube, lots of websites, countless journal articles have been published on the topic. And there's actually a handful of studies that show that prenatal alcohol exposure does damage parts of the brain that are linked to that HPA access as well.
0: This has been an amazing panel discussion. Oh my goodness. I think people will be listening to this episode repeatedly because there is so much information, so such a wealth of information from Dr. Jared Brown. And um, Robbie and I were texting each other during this episode and we're like, this has to happen again. We need to do this again. This is a wonderful panel discussion. So everyone listening, um, please listen to Dr. Jared Brown on on our respective podcasts, and look, we'll look forward to having more panel discussions with Dr. Brown, because again, you can understand why he's a favorite guest with so many of us, um, and who will be a favorite guest of those who haven't um, had him on their podcast already. So Dr. Jared Brown, thank you so much today for being on our panel discussion. Thank
5: you everyone for this fantastic conversation, Jared. I learned so much and you all asked such fascinating questions. I think we just got a whole semester's worth of learning crammed into one hour. Thank you, Jared Brown. And thank you guys all for your very thoughtful questions. That was really wonderful.
2: Thank you. Thank you everyone.
5: Yeah. Uh, Oh, by the way,
2: pregnancy and alcohol, surprising reality, Sandra.
5: Fantastic (laughs) podcast, Kurt. Yes, absolutely.
2: (laughs) I will check it out. Please do.
3: Natalie, thank you so much for lining this up. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate all of you. And feel free to share my email with your audience and definitely uh, look forward to chatting with all of you again very soon.
0: We will definitely be doing this again. Thanks, everyone. Wow. I hope
1: you enjoyed the panel discussion. This conversation, like I mentioned, inspired our bonus episode series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma, FASD, and Adverse Childhood Experiences. I hope you will check those out if you haven't already. Uh, And I just thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. Um, Be sure to check out our website for all of our trauma and FASD resources. As I mentioned at the top, Uh, you can go to our website, justicefororphansny.org to learn more. And you can check out my family's kinship and Ukrainian adoption story in my award-winning book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It won a Golden Scroll Award for Memoir of the Year, which I'm still on cloud nine over um, and just so honored by. Uh, So you can grab a copy wherever you buy your books. If you order from Amazon, hey, go back in after you read it and leave me a review. I would greatly appreciate that. If you would like a signed copy from yours truly, um, I'll sign a copy, include a special gift bookmark and mail it to you myself. Um, You can just order those off of my website, sandraflack.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to our business sponsors, Trinuclear Corporation Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Koksaki, and Cullman Insurance Agency, these businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us at JFO do what we do. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to let us know by subscribing and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped for the journey also. You can find Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram, and myself, Sandra Flack, on both platforms as well. I hope you will look us up and follow us. I'm so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. And share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.